Good news. My new book is almost here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth. And while it doesn't officially come out with Sounds True until May 7th, you can pre-order it now. And when you do, you'll receive up to $500 in additional gifts and resources to support you on your healing journey. I wrote this book because in the four-year span between 2016 and 2020, I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked every area of my life, health, relationships, finances, career, social status, and even my very identity. Along the way, I experienced firsthand just how dysfunctional our culture's relationship to loss really is. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success, shackled with isolation, and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and evolution, not only as individuals, but as a species. So this book expands the conversation around grief and loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we cover those too, to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. This includes the end of a relationship or job, death of a loved one, a natural disaster or a war, infertility, abortion, or a financial crisis. Also, when we're going through hard times, we're encouraged at every turn to hurry up and get on with it. But by trying to power through these messier seasons of life, we're denying ourselves the very answers to our healing and growth. Whether you're experiencing hardship right now, or you know that you have past hurts that are holding you back and still need healing, this book will support you. Handbook for the Heartbroken will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. Within the loving pages of this book, you'll have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically, find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. You can download your free chapter now and pre-order the book to receive all those bonuses at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. That's handbookfortheheartbroken.com. I also want to add that pre-ordering the book now is the very best way that you can support me as an author and the health of this book when it enters the world in May. It signals to booksellers to stock the book at that time and in turn, make it available to more people who need it. So thank you for your pre-orders. Thank you for your support. And I look forward to continuing to deepen together in this important conversation over the coming months. Hi, I'm Sarah Avon Stover, host of Truth, Love, and Beauty. I'm an author, internal family systems practitioner, and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality, who's built a long career since the early 2000s to be exact, in supporting women to cultivate greater psycho-spiritual wholeness and, in turn, to come home to themselves. My dedication to women and to the upliftment of the feminine at large has been a lifelong one. From growing up as the second oldest of four sisters in a Connecticut suburb of New York City, to studying at an Ivy League all-women's college, all the way up to today, And the very things I support women with mirror the struggles that I've had. Things like doubting, pushing, perfecting, hating, and yes, at times, even hurting myself. Yet I've found 
And I have a sense that because you're here, you have too, that these very wounds and pain points can become openings for profound healing, growth, and spiritual insight. I created this podcast in service of honoring just this, this sacred healing journey that we women are on. It was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations with leading thinkers and luminaries about all facets of the feminine spiritual journey. Plus, this podcast highlights three of the core values we must embrace on the feminine path, truth, love, and beauty. Values which we all need more of during this tumultuous time in history. I'm so happy you're here. Let's dive in. Happy October, everyone. This is my favorite month, and my favorite stretch of year is from late September until New Year's. And in today's conversation, we'll be talking about the potency of this time of year, amongst other things, which I know you'll find interesting and relevant. So I'm happy to welcome our guest, Tokopa Turner, a woman whose presence and work I deeply admire. And if you don't know her yet, I know that you will be happy to know her very soon. Blending the mystical tradition of Sufism in which she was raised with a Jungian approach to dream work, Tokopa founded the Dream School in 2001, from which thousands of students have since graduated. She is the author of the award-winning book, Belonging, Remembering Ourselves Home, which explores the themes of exile and the search for belonging. Sometimes called a midwife of the psyche, Tokopa's work focuses on restoring the feminine, reconciling paradox, and facilitating grief and ritual practice. As I mentioned in our conversation today, we speak about the medicine of the equinox and the autumn season. Also, we speak about living with autoimmune illness and creating necessary boundaries and structures in one's life to support this and to support being a sensitive being in the world in general. We talk about dream work and simple steps we can all take to begin more actively relating to our inner hidden dimensions as well as how we can cultivate the skill of belonging in an increasingly lonely and disconnected world. Tokopa is a fount of wisdom, and I'm honored to have her here with us today. Enjoy. All right. Welcome, Tokopa. It's wonderful to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And we always start our conversations just with a personal check-in. So I'd love for you to let us know where you're joining us from today and anything that you, that you want to let us know about how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, I am hailing from Ontario in East, the East of Canada, and um, I just made this move um, after living in British Columbia for 
15, maybe more, maybe 17 years. Um, I grew up in Montreal, so it's kind of like a big full circle move. Um, but yeah, so it's really different and it, it's so magnificent because out West, everything is evergreen for the most part. Everything's green all year round. We get a little bit of snow, but um, just we have this very <laughs> rainy season in the winter. But here in the autumn, it's just this glorious, magnificent, um, uh, slow motion parade of colors. So I've just been trying to fill my eyeballs and soul up with all of the beauty that's changing all around me. And yeah, personally, um, this is really the my favorite season because there's a kind of um, permission to turn inward in this time. So it's a lot, much less extroverted season. So that as a writer, a poet and a dreamer, it <laughs> suits me very well. So I find I'm, yeah, wanting a lot more sleep and, um, and also sinking deeper into my creative process right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I relate to just, this, this is also my favorite season. And here I live in Boulder, Colorado, and just this time of year, the aspen leaves change to yellow and red, and it's just it's just um, it's gorgeous. I love it. And I know we'll get we'll get into talking a little bit more about the autumn season in our conversation, as well as to some other things that you mentioned, like your creative work and your dream work. Um, but one of the things I also like to ask ask our guests because I know that this interests myself and also those who are listening is um, just things that you're doing in your life, whether it's like how you start your day or rituals throughout your day that are really current and you feel are like strengthening you or resourcing you during these turbulent times that we continue to find ourselves in. Mm. Yeah. This, these last few years have are requiring so much endurance. And I think one of the most difficult things about this pandemic and all of the upheaval that has come out of being in a pandemic and related um, stressors is this feeling of not being able to see the horizon, not being able to see, you know, when is it going to be over? When are we going to get out of this situation? When will life return to normal or become a new kind of normal? And um, I think this is one of the things that for me has been um, the most challenging um, because of the isolation that uh, I in particular have to face because I'm one of the most high-risk um, individuals in, in, uh, with regards to getting COVID. So the way that I have been managing that is tapping into larger cyclical processes um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've been speaking a little bit about seasonal changes, but I think there are even bigger cyclical changes that happen at the level of the cosmos. Um, and so I take um, some comfort in those archetypal 
forces that perhaps last thousands of years at a time, and even things that don't change. Um, so one of the things that I do in a practical in in practical terms is I wake up every day and I pay attention to my dreams. And um, when I can remember them, I like to write them down. And then I like to engage in a kind of reflective process, trying to understand why I'm having the dreams that I'm having in present time, and then trying to link those to those bigger archetypal cycles or patterns that um, that we can find in other things like the I Ching or astrology um, and even you know studying astronomy and the cosmos. So just um, finding some comfort in those deeper cyclical rhythms. And we were going to get into this in a little bit, but since you're bringing in dream work now, I'm wondering if you can um, just share a little bit about for those who are not who are who are familiar with what that is, but don't necessarily necessarily engage in it regularly. What what are some ways that we can start to do that? Yeah, well, you know, every night we receive these. Um, amazing, intricate, perfectly crafted stories, narratives that emerge out of our own biology. And to my feeling, you know, I think in, in modernity, because we're so heavily influenced by psychology, mostly we think of dreams as products of the mind, as um you know, neurons firing and creating random sequences of images, which are perhaps like considered the debris of our daily lives. Um, but I don't believe this to be true. I believe our brains are engaged in the activity of dreaming. But I think dreaming originates from a much deeper well. And I would call that, well, just in my own language, I would call that nature. Nature itself is expressing itself through us in the form of these symbols, of these archetypes, these images. And, um, and so in a way, it is the most shared native language of human beings because it comes before culture is ever formed and it comes before we use language um, or before we make definitions for things. It's this sort of sonic um, uh, language that comes right out of our biology. It's the language of images and metaphor. And so for some people, understanding the language of metaphor um, comes very easily. Perhaps they're already inclined that way. Maybe they are a visual artist or they're a poet, something that already, uh, somebody who already practices in images in some way or another. Um, but for other people, it can be difficult to make this shift because our whole culture is really we're based in a rationalist perspective that um, 
thinks quite literally. So we have a dream about someone in our lives, as an example, and we take that dream very literally, that that dream is about that person or about our relationship to that person. So making this shift from literal thinking to symbolic thinking, when we can begin to look at the symbols in our dreams as having a symbolic um, dimension requires a little bit of practice. And um, so in many ways, it is like learning a new language. And so if say, for instance, you don't know how to speak Swahili, you can imagine it would take a number of years to even learn the language, um, but then it might actually take a lifetime to master it. And the same is true with dream work, that um, you know there are people who spend their whole lives studying fairy tales and mythology and symbolism in order to build up a, a deep understanding of symbolic language. Um, but what I like to teach is that we can actually understand symbols through our own uh, appendix of experience just by asking the right questions. And um, so what I mean by that is I'll give you an example. Let's say you dream of a dog. For you, perhaps dreaming of a dog could have personal associations which are filled with love. Maybe your best friend was a dog and you have deep abiding affection for a dog that's in your life. And maybe that's the same dog that you're dreaming of. But for somebody else, maybe when they were a small child, they were attacked by a dog. And so they have very traumatic associations related to a dog. So you have to be able to ask the right questions that would get at those personal associations as well as our um, collective shared associations to whatever that image is that's coming up in your dreams. So you could ask something quite simple as, um, what is a dog? And it seems like a silly question to ask, right? Because everybody knows what a dog is. <laughs> but actually, the way that you answer that question would be very different from uh, in the example that I used, somebody who had the experience of, of being traumatized by an interaction with a dog. So, um, so when you say, what is a dog? The answer that comes out could be something like, you know, a dog is an unpredictable creature that though it's lives with people in their houses and many people love dogs. I personally am quite afraid of dogs. And that leads us down a path that's very specific to the individual who is having the dream that we can begin to understand the dimensionality of their relationship to a dog. So, I mean, that's a little overcomplicated, but, um, but actually there are some simples by following our simple curiosity about the symbols in our dreams. We possess everything that we need in order to understand the dreams that we're having mm. so do you recommend like waking up and writing writing your dreams down right away before you forget them and then then starting to go through the various symbols that are present and, and 
unraveling what those could mean for you, whether just throughout that morning or throughout the day or even longer over time. Is that, is that an approach that you would recommend? Yeah, I mean, the most, um, the, the biggest hurdle to having a relationship with your dreams is remembering them. And I, you know, I think this is because we're really taught to dismiss our dreams in, in the dominant culture. And so, you know, somebody wakes up with a bad dream. And as a small person, you probably heard, never mind, it's just a dream, go back to bed. Um, and this becomes embedded. It's even embedded in her language. We use the word dreamy in a derogatory sense, right? And so we have a lot of sort of cultural dismissal of dreams. We think of them as woo-woo or unimportant or nonsense. And so we internalize that dismissal. And I think this is the real reason why we forget our dreams so often, because we really just don't at the basic level value them and prioritize them. So I do think that writing down your dreams is one of the most powerful ways to begin to develop a relationship with them. Um, they love to be written down. And you'll find that once you start writing down your dreams, you'll receive more and more dreams, actually. Um, and then where to begin with that, you know, I mean, I teach quite in-depth courses in, in how to understand the language of your dreams. I have a, a course called Dream Drops, uh, which is a 30-day sort of um, um, deepening exploration into relationship with your dreams. I offer lots of different exercises for playing with and understanding your symbols. Um, but maybe it's a bit too much to get into that process here. But I, but you know, if I can leave you with anything, it's to say that dreams are incredibly important and just the very act of having curiosity about what the symbols in your dream mean is enough to help you develop that language. And over time, you will just become better at it. But I would recommend staying away from dream dictionaries because most of these are, are quite a bit of nonsense. You know, they say any diction, any book that says your this dream means that and offers you a static definition is kind of like a eating a junk food, you know, it's a junk food answer. What really is necessary in relationship with your dreams is actually being curious about them, investigating them, asking questions of them, and seeing what emerges from the process of having a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, I'm hearing you speak, I'm remembering in the past, uh, there was a, a period of time where I dated a man who was very, very um, interested and involved with his dream work. And he would, the center of his life and his days was really around journaling his dreams and interpreting his dreams. And just all the conversations that we would have around that made my dreams so much more in the forefront of my life. And it's what you're saying just really resonates that that when we make space for it then we do start dreaming more i experienced that i was dreaming more and just becoming more and more conscious and just giving them more of more space in my life than i normally did absolutely yeah it's amazing i um one of the things that happens most commonly to me is if um if i'm in some sort of social environment and somebody asks me what i do 
I tell them <laughs> that I'm a dream worker and they say, well, I don't remember my dreams. That is the number one thing people say to me. I, I don't dream or I don't remember my dreams. They kind of mean the same thing. They're synonymous to people. And, and I, I wait and I give it just a few seconds. And then they say, but I did have this incredible dream last night. And <laughs> so it's amazing just by virtue of, you know, stating that dreams are of value um, or even sharing something from a dream tends to bring on the dreaming abundance in others. Um, and so I, I really believe in bringing dreaming back to the people. And um, because, you know, all indigenous cultures from the beginning of time, with hardly any exceptions, have dream work practices at the center of culture. And it's only us in the West that um, dismisses and devalues dreams. So it's a great loss to so many of us because there's this whole other life that we are not living a whole other half of our life um, that I believe is trying to bring us into relationship with what you might call your higher nature with, um, with a way of being that is in alignment with your soul's purpose and inclination. Um, and uh, when we listen to our dreams, we it they tell us when we are leaning too far to the left or too far to the right, you know, having too much of a one-sided perspective in our lives and help to bring balance and perspective um, and um, growth into our um, into our sense of self. So it is a kind of evolving function in in our our personal system um helping us to evolve and uh, by not paying attention to them we tend to just operate through the perspective of the ego which is the waking consciousness um, but once we start paying attention to the unconscious it has so much to share with us and um, so much value and so much creativity some of the world's greatest inventions from scientific innovations to um, musical symphonies to literary masterpieces have come directly out of the artist's dreams. And what what led you to want to become a, a dream worker? Was it a certain experience that you had or was it just like just an inner calling that you felt over time? Yeah, when I was really little, I had very vivid and remarkable dreams. Um, perhaps it could even be said the most remarkable dreams of my life. So they continue to be some of the most informative experiences I've ever had. And um, I grew up as a Sufi in a Sufi community. And um, it wasn't unusual to talk about our dreams and to share our dreams in that culture, um, which is unusual, I think, for, for, you know, for mainstream values. But so I felt encouraged to pay attention to my dreams. Um, but it wasn't until I was, I think I was about 18 or 19 years old, and I discovered Carl Jung, who was the great um, pioneer of analytical psychology, the Swiss psychiatrist and um, psychoanalyst. 
And, uh, and I discovered a book called Man and His Symbols, which is an amazing starter book if you want to get interested in Jung. Um, and reading this book, I felt like here was this group of people because it wasn't just him it was it was his um colleagues who were contributing to this um these essays within this book were speaking a language that i internally understood and had never heard spoken on the outside before and so i felt like i found my people and um that sent me on a, a long path of being very interested in um analytical psychology um, and then I also hit some limitations with that purely psychological and academic approach to dreams um, and started becoming more interested in some of the indigenous dreaming practices and um, trying to diversify my perspectives. I want instead of talking about dreams, I wanted to be experience I wanted to be experiencing dreams from the inside out um, I wanted a more embodied and somatic and um, nature-based approach to dream work so so all of those things you know from Sufism in which I was raised and the Jungian path and then also drawing on some of those indigenous dreaming practices I think I've cobbled together some sort of um a belief system which helps me have a relationship with my own dreams and which I like to share with other people too. I want to take a short break to let you know that I am leading my annual women's fall weekend retreat in the mountains of Colorado at Drala Mountain Center, which was formerly Shambhala Mountain Center from October 21st to 23rd. Seasonal shifts, especially this one between summer and fall and fall into winter, ask us to pause, reflect, and recalibrate. And over these few days together, we will do just this. Through practicing periods of social silence, women's yin and slow flow yoga, quiet walks in nature, meditation, journaling, wisdom talks and times of community sharing, We'll shed what we're being asked to shed, celebrate what's here to harvest, and start to dream and vision for the long, dark season ahead. I've been leading this, these retreats for the past decade, and each one has its own unique gifts and flavors. It's always rejuvenating and rewarding to step away from our day-to-day -day responsibilities and immerse ourselves in nature, practice, and self-care. Plus, it's always nice to not need to make our beds, have someone else make our food for us, have someone else tell us where we need to go and when to not need to get into our cars. You know what I mean? <laughs> so if this speaks to you, I'd love for you to join us. Often women come from nearby and also from far away. You can learn more at my website, sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag offerings sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag offerings. And now back to our conversation. And uh, you mentioned a little earlier that just what led us into finding resource and dreams, especially, especially in these times for you is that you have that you do fall in a high risk category and you have needed to isolate 
over, over this time. And I know that you've also spoken about just in your teachings and in your book, which we'll get to more in a bit that you, you live with autoimmune illness. And I know a lot of women listening do as well. And I'm wondering if you could share with us because you're also, you also give so much to the world through your books, your teachings, even us on social media. How do you, how do you navigate just, just, you seem like a sensitive person and to do the work that you do requires a lot of sensitivity. How do you balance just being out in the world, giving at a large scale and also taking care of yourself and your sensitivity? That is such a great question. And um, it's such a big question. I really feel like we could spend our whole time together speaking about that because I'm not sure that I have any answers, but I do feel as if autoimmune disease has been um, one of the biggest teachers around this topic. Because when you get sick, uh, when you get seriously sick, you don't have a choice, um, even if you are like I was, someone who is so devoted to sharing and, and giving, there comes a point where you literally have to count your energy in tiny spoonfuls. Um, and if you know that all you have is one spoon in a day, you have to be very careful about how you use that spoon because you might also need to get dressed that day or um, wash the dishes or, um, you know, work on your own material or, or whatever it is basic, basic things that require energy and which, you know, people who are healthy take for granted that they can do many things in a day. So it quite literally becomes impossible to give more than you should um, because there are consequences from uh, too overgiving. Um, sometimes, you know, giving can actually become pathological where and this is one of the things I talk about in the book, that giving and receiving are part of the same mechanism, actually, um, that there's no such thing as giving without receiving. And um, and so if you become, you know, there's this old adage in culture that says, you know, it's better to give than to receive. Um, but this doesn't make any sense because they're interdependent, <laughs> interdependent systems. If you just think about, you know, um, how a bee pollinates, you know, it's, it's just, um, these are, uh, like puzzle pieces of the same act. And so when you think about it in those terms, um, you really have to ask yourself, how good are you at receiving? If you derive so much of your identity out of giving, um, you have to ask, how good are you at receiving? Because that's the other half of the equation. And I think that's one of the big teachers of autoimmune disease, because you need a lot of help. And um, that help um, might look like you know, having some people in your family who can support you. It could look like needing financial support. It could look like, you know, needing a helper. And um, 
to, you know, to do your work, but, um, but our culture is not really set up to support people who are sick. And so this becomes glaringly obvious when you lose the resources of energy. So, um, so I have to say that, um, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid disease in 2016. Uh, it took many years to get diagnosed. So I had already, I was already sick before then um, and in quite bad shape by that point. But things declined really rapidly after my diagnosis. Um, it sort of went full blown. Um, and so for those who don't know about rheumatoid disease, I think a lot of people call it rheumatoid arthritis. Um, but those of us who have the disease often advocate for a change of the name because we associate arthritis with sort of a mild lifestyle condition. Um, and we think of it as sort of the normal wear and tear that you get as you get older. Uh, but rheumato rheumatoid disease in, is an, um, an autoimmune disease and it affects people of all ages. So you can have rheumatoid disease uh, as I did. Um, when you're a very small person, you can have it as a child. It's just called juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, um, and it affects your entire system. So it's a disease that eats away at the uh, healthy tissue in your body, including your bones and your cartilage, but it also affects your organs. And um, of course, it's deeply depleting on an energetic level because you experience a great deal of excruciating pain. So I'm um, telling you all of this just to give you a picture of what it's like to live with this illness. And um, I have to say that it took me, let's see, another five years before we could find medical treatment that slowed down the progression of my disease. And so I am deeply thankful for uh, biologics medicine that I'm, that is keeping me alive right now. Um, and so that has to be included in the conversation as what's helping me cope because it's giving me a uh, quality of life that I didn't have for many years. And I'm not sure I would be here today if it wasn't for that. And um, in terms of how I manage my life and my business, I mean, if you follow me on social media, you'll know that I disappear for, you know, big chunks of time without explanation. And, um, you know, for instance, I haven't, you know, I think you were saying, Sarah, that you recently attended something that I did uh, for the Equinox. Um, and uh, I hadn't done something like that in I think two years. Um, and, and also I, because of COVID, I haven't been able to be in teaching in public for almost three years now. So I've been in extreme isolation, which has been really hard and, um, and challenging in a way that I'm not even sure I can articulate because I'm inside of it. <laughs> but if you find me awkward and um, and uh, not making much sense, it's it's probably for that reason. But I'm doing my best. Um, You're doing great. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, it's a relief. <laughs> um, yeah. So. 
So, um, so how do I cope with it? How do I find balance? I mean, I don't know that I've achieved any of these things. Um, like, are there certain boundaries that you've put in place? Like that are just really central taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Um, so for instance, I would say that I, I get a huge number of invitations to participate in podcasts and show up on um, summits and appear at events. And I quite literally say no to 95% of the invitations that I get. Um, and I don't really tend to explain just because even that takes energy. So I just decline. Um, so I really spend a lot of time declining and I have to be very careful and judicious about what I say yes to, because I know that I will take a toll. Um, and, um, and so for me, the, the probably the most summarizing quality of the disease is really getting in touch with what is the most essential and important um, activities and friendships and values that I possess as a human being. And for me, that comes down to my most intimate relationships, which is a very small number of people. And it, it has to do with using that energy to um, be in nature because that gives me energy and restores me and um, offers me beauty. And it has to do with writing. So um, I spend what energy I do have very slowly, extremely slowly, unbelievably slowly um, working out, I guess, trying to articulate from the inside of what is happening to me. Um, what are those lifelines that I'm holding on to, which keep me going? Do you have any sort of a formal writing practice? Uh, I write all day, um, every day. So I wake up in the morning and I try not to um, use any devices or, you know, uh, I mean, I have to use a device to work, but um, I actually do a lot of my writing by hand in my journal first. Um, so for instance, the entirety of belonging was written by hand in my journal and then I had to painstakingly, you know, transcribe it and get all those pieces to talk to each other. So the editing process was uh, probably more extensive than the writing of the content itself. Um, but I, but I do find that this has a more, uh, a much more sensual, immediate, undistracted, very connected way of writing. Uh, because when you're on the computer, it's, I don't know, it, first of all, it uses a different part of the brain um, to be typing digitally. And um, second of all, it's very tempting to, to scroll away and, you know, use the internet. And um, I'm, I'm uh, hopeless when it comes to that. I'm very easily distractible. So, so those are more boundaries. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Your writing is beautiful. And I, the first time that I read, I'm doing air quotes, read your book, it was the audio book. And I especially love audiobooks when the authors read it themselves. And I listened to it while going for um, walks outside in the middle of winter and COVID. 
you know, weather that I normally wouldn't be walking in because there was just not, nowhere else to go, nothing else to do. And it was just such um, a deep experience for me. I think I'll always remember that just walking in the cold, in the snow and listening to your words. And I resonated with so much of what you shared. I know that also a lot of people listening have felt that sense of being the exile, being the the black sheep, being kind of outside of that feeling of belonging. And I'm wondering if you can share, like, what was the origin story of that book for you? Like, how how did that come into being? Yeah, well, um, I had found this, I, I was living on Salt Spring Island at the time. Um, and um, my partner and I had just moved there. I think we'd only been there a, a couple of years. And um, I found this group of people who I really liked. They seemed to share a lot of the values that I held. Um, they like to make things by hand and they like to hold ceremony and they um, offered thanks in prayer to the earth and were very ecologically minded. And I just really resonated with them at all, uh, a lot. And, um, and then I discovered that they were following this teacher um, who they were inviting to Salt Spring Island to, to offer some weekend workshops. And, um, and I thought, well, if all of them are following this teaching, I, a teacher, I, I'm sure that I would resonate with him as well. And so I signed up for this weekend workshop. And sure enough, all the people that were attracted to over these like beautiful, um, smart, soulful, sensitive people. And I just, I really felt this sense of belonging that I hadn't felt for years. And I thought, you know, finally I have found my people, you know, this is, this is, this is where I belong. And then I met the teacher and I immediately was rubbed the wrong way by this person who was extremely eloquent and very knowledgeable and, you know, drew upon a lot of um, deep teachings that I was already familiar with. But I also found this um, sort of imperialistic quality, you know, where you, you've seen these groups of these kinds of teachers before where you have this um, male authority who everyone follows and devotes themselves to it. And for me, it's a very problematic kind of structure. And, uh, you know, I, um, a long time ago, left that world. <laughs> I grew up in that world. And so um, I can sort of spot it a mile away. And so I, so I just, I was like, this isn't for me. And um, some, you know, some things happened over the course of this weekend that I just really rubbed me the wrong way. And um, so I told my, my friend and host, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be leaving. And I said goodbye to the people who were there that weekend. And my friend turned to me and she said, um, you know, if you leave, there will be consequences. And I was so taken aback by that comment. I thought, what in the world could she mean by consequences? Like what consequences could you possibly suffer by making a decision that something isn't right for you? 
Well, what I didn't know was that I was about to be shunned from this community of people. And they would not return my phone calls. They, um, There were things being said behind my back by the teacher to the community about how I had failed the community and all of this, like very blown out of proportion um, situation. And it was, you know, I'm laughing about it now, but at the time it was extremely upsetting. If you can imagine living on a small island with a limited number of people um, and suddenly feeling as if you'd been exiled um, just for following what you know is true to your own soul and heart. And so, um, so this particular event was so deeply triggering for me that I fell into a very deep depression. And intellectually, I knew that, you know, what's the big deal? I hardly know these people, you know, this isn't relatively speaking important as an event in my life. And yet my body was having a profound reaction. I mean, there were points where I was hyperventilating. I was um, in a great deal of pain. This was before I knew how sick I was. Um, but the disease just like blew up in this time. And so I really was forced to face the, the re-traumatization of what was happening in this event. And I, I realized over time through my own sort of reflective process, and I'm talking months later, that this event had triggered a deep childhood injury for me where I had been exiled from my own childhood home. And um, I tell some of my story in the book, Belonging, about how I left home when I was 14, 15 years old and, um, and never had family again after that. So I was essentially orphaned at that young age and ended up having to go and live in the system. And um, it changed the course of my life forever in unimaginable ways. So a lot of those um, milestones that people are used to having when you have a family, you know, just little things like graduating high school or getting a driver's license or having your health taken care of. Um, just these, these things that you sort of take for granted when you have a family, people being there for you on the occasions of Christmas and your birthday and so on and so forth, um, were just gone. From my life in this one moment. And so, um, so thus began my life feeling, um, experiencing life as an outsider, outside of all of those momentous occasions that I saw others going through. And um, I thought I had worked through the worst of that trauma in many years of therapy, but um, as it turned out, it was alive and well in this moment. And I realized that this deep longing to belong, which was what was the impetus behind me joining this weekend workshop group in the first place, 
had been actually unconsciously driving my life in many ways that I just wasn't aware of. And so I started to ask myself the question, really, what is belonging and how much of my life am I going to spend searching, aching, longing for this place of belonging, only to place it in the hands of other people um, and to be um, vulnerable to the exclusions or rejections um, or consequences, as it was said to me, um, of other people's decision-making processes. And so I really started to sort of ask, you know, what is belonging? And um, started to receive these really powerful dreams, which seemed to be teaching me that belonging wasn't a place outside of myself at all, but actually a skill that I had never been taught and that which seemed to extend into the culture that the culture itself had lost or forgotten. And so the book is really about that. It's about what exactly are those skills and how can we enter into that deep original wound of our own exile so that we can begin to reframe how to create belonging as a skill or a set of competencies from the inside out so that we can actually build places of belonging, not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us and perhaps even beyond the human culture into the other than human world. It's just such such a needed book for this time that we're in of where lo- there's so much loneliness, so much depression. I was talking with um, a friend who works in the mental health industry. He's working on a book about mental health. And he he said how, I think it was like in 10, 10, 10 or 20 years, one in two people in the US are gonna have some sort of mental illness. And just so much of it stems from this feeling of not belonging, not feeling that sense of community and connection. And it's just, it's empowering and inspiring the way that you frame it, that it's a skill that we can learn. It's not something that we need to to seek outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think you're right. I think it's epidemic and never more so was that evident until the pandemic. And we really got a sense of our social isolation. And I think it's brought um, the question up for a lot of people because a lot of friendships became fractured in that time. They couldn't withstand not just friendships, but familial relationships, Um, intimate relationships, relationships with group systems and so forth, um, because it really, people really had to face what in exile was important to them. What were the ways in which they needed to be seen? They needed to be understood at this most 
basic fundamental level. And that's really what happened for me, you know, in my own exile. Um, and I sort of frame it in the book as a an initiation. I call them initiations by exile because there are these periods in the trajectory of belonging where we have to enter into separateness so this is one of the big revelations that came through for me that belonging isn't just a static place of attainment that you look for you find and then you're happily ever after it's actually a dynamic process that requires periods of togetherness and apartness um, belonging and exile are actually sisters and each are equally important. And it's in these times of exile, of exclusion, of being an outsider, that we really come to know the true medicine of our calling, of our vocation. You know, if you look to the fairy tales, there's always a moment where the hero or heroine has to break from the known world that they live in. They have to break from the kingdom or the castle or a place of status or power. They have to leave and go on a period of endurance and searching where they enter the dark thicket of the forest. And there they meet with various kinds of monsters and allies and really discover who they are. They discover their metal. And it is that process itself which is helping shape a true belonging as opposed to the false belonging that we receive when we join a group and we're given sort of conditional membership in that group, as I was in, in my own story, given a kind of conditional membership where there are these hidden contracts in place that say, you belong here so long as. <laughs> and then it's that dot, dot, dot that is the really important part because that's the part that you're required to cut yourself off from in order to maintain conditional membership. And that could look like don't talk about messy things, don't have difficult feelings, don't share your grief, don't you know, be negative, don't, um, I don't know, don't cry, don't, there's all kinds of things that um, we learn um, both um, within those groups and then outside of them about what really had been asked of us to be uh, in that place of false belonging. But what I'm talking about is a true belonging, a, a belonging which is an unassailable sense of belonging to the breadth of who you are, which in, is entirely inclusive of everything that makes you up. And this, I just want to emphasize, is just the starting ground upon which we should be building culture, because it's only from that place of being entirely inclusive of who we are that we can ever 
offer a true sense of belonging and shelter to others. And I include the other than human world in that framework too. Um, so, so this is work that I think everybody has an opportunity in those moments of exile to be initiated into the true sense of belonging that is innately um, uh, at the core and essential to each of us. Mm. And, and this leads into where we started and where, where I wanted to get to at some point in this conversation, which is just the medicine of this season that we're in the season of autumn, at least in the Northern hemisphere, the season of descent of going in and down, which is, which is an initiation of sorts of turning into shadow material of like cultivating more of that inclusiveness within ourselves. Can you speak more about just how, how you're embracing or how one can embrace the medicine of the season? Yeah, well, so we just had the, I, um, we just had the equinox in, um, late September, and that marked the point, the threshold where we were in exact um, balance between night and day because the sun is right above the equator. But then we started entering into longer and longer nights, um, which, of course, as we were talking about earlier, is very conducive to dreaming and to exploring um, what is mythologically called the underworld. And um, so the story that I really like to draw on in this time is the story of Persephone's abduction by Hades into the underworld. And um, what I love, I mean, there's lots of things to love about this story, um, but it really sort of shows us this cyclical nature of life, death, life um, that we see when the seasons change over. So at this time, I think there's this simultaneous recognition of the abundance that we've been able to cultivate in these spring and summer seasons. So hopefully you're able to look at the harvest of all that you've created since spring, since around February or March, and say, wow, I, I did a lot, and I'm now able to reap some of the benefits of that planting those seeds and cultivating those grounds. And that looks differently for every person. It could look like um, investing in your social life. It could look like um, creating new projects. Um, it could like look like working really hard and finally watching the abundance come back to you. But it's really important to um, take a moment to pause, to pause and just really recognize how much you have done to count the blessings that are sustaining you. And um, I really think this should be a kind of daily practice um, if you can make that possible, because it really helps to 
place your attention on that which is supporting you every day. And it could be as simple as the water coming out of your taps or the sun touching your skin or the friend who texts you to see how you're doing because they care about you. These very small things that um, that come back to let you know that you're essential and that you're needed. So that's one half of it. But the other half of it is really noticing what is falling away. And this is Paul. This is the in the northern hemisphere anyway. Um, so this is the season of things falling away and releasing and showing us what's inessential. And of course, this can take lots of different forms as well. Um, those things that are no longer serving us, those things that maybe are draining energy. Um, I always look to the trees because the trees have such a dramatic, um, they're such dramatic exemplars of, of how to live with nature. And so in the autumn, of course, all the energy is pulled back out of the branches and brought into um, to conserve and, and sent down into the trunk. Um, where, and that's why the leaves change color if they change color in your where you are. Um, I know the aspens do, but the um, and so they fall away. And the same thing is happening for us as well. We need to conserve over the winter months. And as a result, we have to pull back those places where energy is being drained or is just being put into the wrong places. So it's this kind of sifting and sorting work, you know, um, and then we have to do as Persephone did, which is to really um, live in the season of the underworld, at least for half of the year, which um, maybe is not so much so in the in the Western side of the world. But um, here in Ontario, we have a deep, long, cold winter ahead. And... Um, and so, yes, so looking at the ways in which that which is essential, um, those things that are essential to us to give our energy to those things and also to prepare for the long months ahead and, um, and plan for, because those things that we give attention to now will be the seeds that we then spring, um, plant in the spring, which will give us more abundance in the season that follows. And what is your current growing edge? Hmm. <laughs> well, I am working on my next book at the moment, and I am I'm having to spend a lot of time studying liturgical texts, um, which I'm finding very challenging because I didn't grow up in the Judaic um Christian tradition at all. And yet I find myself a deep uh, learning about um, biblical um, teachings, because it's relevant to, to what I'm writing about. Um, and so what 
I am coming up against is a lot of the deep, deeply indoctrinated dogma that exists within those traditions that has metastasized into secular culture that still exists in people who uh, haven't been um, indoctrinated in, in those you know, religious traditions. So I'm really, uh, my growing edge is coming up against a lot of those invalidations at the moment and just trying to put one foot in front of the other, uh, writing about something that feels quite still uh, heretical, if I can even say that. It seems so silly to say that, but there it is. Hmm. Is there anything more you can say about the book that you're writing or are you keeping it close to you? You know, I am keeping it close to me at the moment. Yeah. Um, but I, I hope it won't be too long before I can share some of what I'm writing about. Yeah, I understand. And where can listeners learn more about you? Or is there anything that you specifically want to direct people to? Definitely your book, Belonging. But yeah. where, where can people find you? Yeah, um, well, you know, I do share a lot of excerpts from my writing on social media. So you can find me on Instagram or Facebook. And um, I'm pretty easy to find because there's really only one Tokopa. So um, my name is spelled T-O-K-O dash P-A. And um, so just throw that in a search bar and you'll find me in a bunch of places. Um and uh, I don't think I, 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 you know, as I mentioned, I do have a course called Dream Drops, and um, that's a really great way to get started with um, learning about your dreams. But I will be teaching more this winter because I love to teach about dreams in the winter. Um, so stay tuned for that. You can get onto my mailing list and I'll tell you when I'm, you know, I have been sort of hiding out since the pandemic started, but I'm starting to emerge more and more now. Um, so I hope to have some things to announce soon. So if you just get on my mailing list, I'll, I'll tell you what they are. And I'm, I'm sort of a delinquent emailer. So if that is um, enticing to you, you know, I'm not going to spam you. So <laughs> um, maybe once every six months, you'll get an email from me. That seems to be my pattern lately. Although I hope to improve that. <laughs> hey, well, thank you for being here with us. Thank you for just all the wisdom that you bring forth into the world. And I especially appreciate, I know that you're conserving your energy. I appreciate that you were here with us today. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you too. Thank you for being here today. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you could take a moment to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes. That is the best way to support me in continuing on with this podcast and also to support other women in finding this, other women who may find this beneficial for their own lives. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you're not already signed up for my newsletter, Monthly Insights, which I've been sending out now for almost 20 years, I welcome you to join me and a community of like-hearted women from around the world there. You can subscribe at my website, sarahavonstover.com. Until next time. I'm sending you my heartfelt support.